Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend, another co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, if you were to use the website 23andMe to find your heritage, what would your heritage be? I'm, I'm not familiar with this website, 23andMe. Yeah, they're a service that you can use, and they'll analyze your DNA and tell you all about your ancestry and where you came from. You never heard of this website before? No, no, I have not. Did we get sponsored? No, no, we're not sponsored. We're not cool enough for that yet. Unlucky. Uh, So what would I find if I use this website to analyze my heritage? Yeah, do you know what your heritage is? Do you know where you came from? I, I do not. I do not. What about you? What would we find if you use the website to analyze your heritage? I probably should use this website because my father was adopted, so he never knew who his biological parents were. And my mother never knew who her dad was. So I just have a big old mystery lottery when it comes to who I'm actually related to in life. <laughs> so how would the how would the website know that? Is it like a DNA test or something? Yeah, it would then match your chromosomes and your good pairs of DNA to other like pairs of matched DNA and tell you where you came from. This sounds like uh, a way to spend a lot of money on something I don't care about. It's not that much money. It's only like a hundred bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what the four letters are for the makeup of your DNA? Nope. It's ATCG. It's adamine, thymine, guamine, and cytosine. Cool. I will not remember that. I learned this because in eighth grade, they had it was a required assignment to write all about your ancestry for this class paper. And I told my teacher, I don't know my class, I don't know my heritage. And my father was adopted and my mom never knew who her dad was. I can't write this paper. I don't know what to tell you. And my teacher is like, okay, you just have to write a very in-depth science paper about genetics and DNA. And I don't know why (laughs) those four letters and names of those chemical compounds have stuck with me ever since. So Cool. Yeah. So today's episode is not about genetics, though. Although (laughs) It's not? You're clearly genetically predisposed to being amazing at card games. So uh, I don't know how insightful you'll be, but we're going to be talking about how to get better at card games. Yeah. So I don't know if genetics apply to card games, if that's a thing. Just like Oh, they do. They 100% do. You got the whole nature versus nurture thing. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But that's more of a psychology belief. Yeah. Or study, I should say. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So I guess in general, our podcast is always aimed at helping people get better. But outside of listening to our podcast, I don't know if we've ever really gone through and talked about what you can actually do yourself to get better at the game and thought it would be good to actually just kind of break down the different things you can do if you're looking to improve at flesh and blood. Yeah. So outside of listening to us, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what do you do every day to get better at flesh and blood, Michael? Do you meditate with cardboard in your hand under waterfalls or? (laughs) No. So the first thing I do almost every day, not every day is I play test and we kind of touched on playtesting a little bit in the deck building episode a few weeks ago, but it was very light and I wanted to go a little bit deeper on what actually is involved in effectively playtesting. So the first thing when you're playtesting, you should be asking questions and trying to find answers to those questions. What kind of questions should you be asking? So maybe you should have a sideboard plan and you should 
and you should be testing to see if the cards you're sideboarding in in this matchup are doing what you're trying to do, and if your deck is still functioning the way you intend it to be after sideboarding. So a good example of this was back in the Prism meta, when you were playing Runeblades or Fi even, a lot of people would bring in a reasonable amount of poppers for the Prism matchup. And generally, Prism would plan to fight against these aggressive decks with auras because auras were the most powerful thing Prism could do. So she'd be putting down these auras and not really attacking with heralds that often. And sometimes when they did, your attacks would have minus one so the command and conquer and erase faces wouldn't even pop the heralds anyway. So you should be really analyzing how effective these poppers are in the matchup and if they are causing issues as much as they're helping you. Because if Prism plays a turn where she just plays two auras and your hand has one or even worse, two of these poppers, and your turn ends up being quite clunky because you have these poppers instead of some more efficient or smooth actions like go again attacks or something in your deck, and you have these poppers instead, that could be a pain point as well. And these cards that you're siding in to try to help you with the matchup are actually making it worse sometimes. So part of playtesting is asking questions about your sideboard configurations and trying to figure out if the things that, if the games are playing out the way you expect them to be when you're making sideboard decisions. What about asking questions like, why would I ever bother playing this deck when I know Tarek Patel is going to be in the tournament and that's going to make it so I have buys? Are those good questions to ask? What? What? I don't understand. (laughs) This is, this is, that's... Or conversely, why should I bother testing when I know Michael Hamilton's going to be at the tournament? I can't possibly win. Are those good questions to ask? Questions about flesh and blood. Questions about cards or decisions you're making in the game or outside of the game that relate to the game do you know what i'm actually getting at with those questions though no please explain to me they're pretty meta questions so you can ask questions about what you expect the tournament to be like so i guess that's a pretty common term that people use which is a meta game do you want to explain like what a meta when people talk about that what that actually means Okay, yeah, so the meta of a field is kind of the expected decks that you'll play against, So, or I guess it is the decks you'll play against, and you're trying to basically predict the meta of a tournament you're going to. For example, if you are thinking about playing Oldheim at the Pro Tour in Lille, and you think the metagame is going to be almost all aggro decks with very little prism, then Oldheim is a great choice. And you should probably play Oldheim. But if the metagame is going to be 30% Prism, then suddenly Oldheim looks a lot worse because you're basically pretty close to guaranteed to lose each of those matches that you get paired against Prism. So predicting the metagame can be a very powerful tool for deck choice for events. Gotcha. That makes sense. The next thing for effective playtesting is to have goals going into your sessions. So if you are trying to figure out the best way to sideboard a matchup, that is a good goal to have. And it kind of goes, this kind of, so this kind of goes hand in hand with asking questions. Like your goal may be to find the answers to these questions, like how to sideboard, or can I build this deck in a way to be favored against this other matchup that I expect to be a common part or a common piece in the metagame. And you can spend time playtesting to try to figure that out. And if not, maybe that means if you can't solve those things or you're, or you don't meet your goals, maybe it's time to look at a different deck or a different hero or maybe it's time to just work, do something else, basically, I guess. (laughs) 
What if my goal is to be the best flesh and blood player in the world? Is that a good goal to have when I'm going into playtesting? So your goals for playtesting should be more specific than that. And basically... Okay, I want to be the best flesh and blood player in Indiana. Is that is that that's 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 a smaller region, right? That's a more realistic playtesting goal. That's uh, it should be something that you should be able to feel like you've accomplished during the session. And it's hard to really measure who the best player in an area is during a playtest session, and it's not. Well, it's easy when we playtest, since I'm playtesting into you. So, <laughs> but that doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're making this a hard episode. <laughs> it's my goal. <laughs> that, that was your goal. Well, at least you have a goal, you know? Yeah. I got to appreciate the small wins where you can take them. Mm-hmm. So in general, your goal should be aimed at something specific to a matchup or a hero or something that will help you do better in the tournament. So if your goal is to be the best flesh and blood player, that isn't something that you can realistically accomplish in a playtest session and it's not something that's very measurable either which is important as well here's a goal that here's a good example of a goal that i had in a playtesting session where i just wanted to get one game off of you when we were playtesting prism versus viscerai and you were just beating me up game after game after game after game and i just wanted one teeny tiny win with prism against viscerai in order to make myself feel better and i got it that was a good goal yeah Okay, so what else about playtesting? So is there anything else so, about playtesting before we move on? Or no. So the last thing I want to talk about with playtesting is it can be very helpful to get different perspectives. And I think one way that you could do that is just playing both sides of a matchup. So if you're trying to figure out the Prism versus Viscerai matchup, you should try playing both the, as Prism and as Viscerai. Because you'll if you are the Prism, if you're trying to learn the prism side of the matchup playing as viscerite can be very useful because when you are playing against the opposing prism and they do things that are very efficient or cause problems for you that can kind of shape how you want to play the game for the prism side you can kind of take away things from that as well and you also can kind of see what their awkward points are or the pain points of the viscerite deck and kind of potentially learn ways to exploit those so if you're playing Viscerai and you're like, wow, this hand's really, really bad, and your opponent is playing Prism and they attack you with one blue aura without going in because they used their whole hand to block last turn, they just attack with one blue aura for one damage, and suddenly you can use your Crown of Providence and it fixes your whole hand, you might not realize that that's something that would be happening from just playing the Prism side of the matchup. If you play as Viscerai and have that experience where it fixes the hand, then that could be a good takeaway that you get from playing both sides of the matchup. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I see here you say play multiple decks. So that means you want to play every deck into that you're thinking about playing in a tournament into every deck that could exist to make sure you know how your Levia and Azalea and Bolton matchups are handling. Yep, you just need to spend infinite hours. Otherwise, why are you bothering? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I think... You should play decks that you expect to show up as a reasonable percentage of the metagame, like we were talking about. It's kind of important to at least take a guess at what you think will show up, and people will bring random decks out of left field that you can't really expect. But for the most part, Flesh and Blood tournaments are reasonably predictable in what you would think would show up. Like, if Oldheim and Icelander have been doing well, Oldheim, Icelander, and Phi, then you can reasonably predict 
in the future metagame, there will be a significant amount of Oldheim, Icelander, and Fi. And it might be two of those heroes are more popular and one's a little less popular, but you can get a good idea of what you should be spending some time learning and playing against just by what's been doing well recently. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It feels like a lot of these playtesting things are also requiring you to do a good amount of homework outside of your playtesting sessions, but that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that because I just do that stuff a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. We're just hashing it out. Yeah. We're just trying to have a meaningful discussion over here. So I guess next on your notes here is saying, have meaningful discussions about flesh and blood. So what is the distinction between a meaningful and a meaningless conversation about flesh and blood? I like your transition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, I guess a meaningless, I don't want to say meaningless, but (laughs) I don't like that terminology. But meaningful discussions are conversations where the goal is to learn something and Learn for you and the person you're talking with. Hopefully, one of you learned something, and ideally, both of you learned something from it. And the first step to having a meaningful discussion is finding other players that have similar goals to you. That doesn't have to be the same, but if you are pretty competitive, focused, and are trying to do well at tournaments, then you want to find other players that have similar goals where they're trying to prepare and do well at tournaments. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the team with the wolf pack and i think like finding this group has been great because there's just a lot of great players here that have similar goals they're all trying to prepare and do well in tournaments so it makes it much easier to have people to talk to but if you're not part of a flesh and blood team which most of the community is not then one outside of just like talking to your friends and stuff one thing that i found that you can do a lot is after a match, especially if it was a loss and you and your opponent had good vibes during the game, which is most of the time when you're playing Flesh and Blood because community is great here, you can ask your opponent's questions and kind of try to get their opinion on maybe specific plays that stood out to you and ask them like how things felt or if there was just, you could be more general, just be like, was there anything that I did that seemed wrong to you? Or you can ask about specific plays and they can be like, yeah, when you took nine damage to... Oak and old me back and Oak and old me instead of just blocking out. I felt very good because I just got to husk it and move on instead of getting fatigued. And that was a conversation I had with Ryan Rich after uh, our match in a pro quest where I was playing old time into his chain. And I, I had taken a reason amount of damage to play an Oak and old fused and he just husked it. And I was like, that was probably bad. And I asked him after the game and he's like, yeah, when you did that, I thought I had a pretty good chance of winning. So that's that's just a great way to kind of open the discussion is ask about a play you made that you think may have been not correct or bad and hopefully your opponent's pretty receptive to it and that's a great way to find people that'll kind of have discussions with. Yeah, there's something that's baked into this point though that I think you alluded to briefly um, in the qualif. You said there's a lot of great players on our team, and we all know Ryan Rich is uh, somebody who's very good at Flesh and Blood, despite his performance in our team sealed. Uh, that time. <laughs> wow. But you know, it may- I had to be the dead weight because you won the last team sealed uh, without me. So you're welcome for me wanting to go home afterwards. Uh, <laughs> But anyways, you need, so not only is it important to ask questions, right? But it's important to be asking the questions to good players, right? Or players of similar skill level to you. 
Yeah, I think ideally you always want to be asking questions to someone who's a little bit better than you at the game, but that's not always a possibility just because of who's available. Okay, but imagine you're just starting out and you and everybody around you uh, just learned how to play Flesh and Blood last week or when we first started, like what kind of questions or what kind of, are you saying we didn't have any meaningful discussions until after you won Orlando and you were deemed a good player? (laughs) No, we had lots of good discussions before that. And we did kind of talk about a lot of the plays that we made in games and ask if this was working. Um, Hmm. I did say good player, but I don't think that's like necessarily true. It just needs to be someone that's like thinking about the game. And I think we were like thinking about the game very well reasonably before we went to any tournaments. Yeah, I think you think we were thinking about the game, but I think that you think that we weren't necessarily thinking about the game the way that we needed to think about the game, you know? Sorry, I didn't hear that. I got lost a little bit. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Oh, okay. So... Spending time discussing matchups and strategies. So it sounds like you need to start having meaningful discussions during playtesting. So you're kind of going hand in hand. So you need to meaningfully discuss the matchup while you're conducting effective playtesting. We're getting, we're looping it all together, Michael. Yeah, it's all, it all kind of goes together. But in general, when you're playtesting and you have these goals and you're asking questions, instead of just asking yourself these questions, you can also ask your opponent these questions and see what their thoughts are on the matters. And when you're trying different sideboard things, you can share that with your opponent. You can be like, hey, I'm trying out blue brain freeze and I'm, I really want to know if it's good when I cast it and how you feel like it impacts you. And you tell your opponent that, your opponent knows that, you go into the game and you blue brain freeze them and look at their hand and put something on top that maybe, maybe it's not that impactful or it doesn't feel that impactful to you. But then your opponent's like, yeah, because you brain freeze me, I couldn't play around X thing or... I just didn't have a very good turn because you took the card I needed to play or something like that. And just like asking questions about the things you're attempting and kind of discussing what you think might be good. And you can also be like, when you're asking them about it, they they can be like, yeah, it, it was actually good in that spot, but I really only have six targets for blue brain freeze. So most of the time you're just going to miss when you play it. So it's probably was kind of fortunate that it was good and not like the average case. And that's something you might not see if you only have time to play one or two games and you cast it once or twice and it's good both times and it can be good to get that outside opinion on the matter outside perspective there we go mm-hmm. okay so i'm liking i'm liking the two things we have so far and what i know that you do as well all the time is because 50 percent of the games you play are feature matches and you know most of those are you know matches where you win you watch those over and over and over again just because you love seeing yourself win so much <laughs> so could you talk about how you do replay analysis and all the games you win uh, i wouldn't say i watched them over and over and over again but every I, time i walk into your house right on a big screen tv is you beating Fino black over and over again and you're like oh here it comes roger i'm about to draw the rainbow oak and old and then <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like i know michael i was there Um, so outside of feature matches, there's a pretty easy way to get your replays recorded. And when you're playing on either Talishar or Tabletop Simulator, you can just use any screen recording program and just record your games and go back and watch them. I've found that's pretty helpful and it makes it like, yeah, playing a bunch of feature matches does make it easy to have games to 
to analyze, <laughs> but it is still uh, very easy to just record on your computer. I recommend OBS. That's what I've been using, or OBS Studio, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. But that's what I use. There are lots of good programs out there that you can use to just record and go back and watch your games. If you're playing in paper with physical cards, it's reasonably harder to do, but you could set up a camera and record. Yeah, just break out your dad's VHS VHS tape recorder from back in the day, put it right next to your monitor and go to town. And then when you're watching it, and what kind of things should people be looking for during this replay analysis? Should they just be looking for uh, the turn cycles that they won, or is it more involved than that? So looking at the turn cycles you won can be useful. You can see if there's something that you did to really put your opponent in a bad spot. But the main thing that you're looking for, or the main thing I'm looking for when I watch replays is basically points that I made mistakes or points where I had a sideboard card that was ineffective. So Yeah, how do you identify a mistake though? So when you're playing Flesh and Blood in person or online or anywhere, you only have so much time to make every decision. You can't necessarily run through every single possibility and figure out every possible thing that could have happened with those set of cards that you have and the set and the blocks you need to make on your opponents and all that. During replay review, you can pause and think for five minutes, ten minutes, as long as you need to try to figure out what the optimal line is and like I said before, Flesh and Blood's mostly about math, and usually the optimal line is just whatever gives you the most damage output. And there's some things that uh, can change that, like if you should use a key piece of equipment, if it's the time to use it, or you could save your equipment and do something else. And there are other things other than just like the raw value of your four cards. And whether you should use your equipment here depends on like if this is a better spot than you'll likely than you're likely to get in the rest of the game, depending on the equipment piece and that kind of thing but yeah we're getting pretty heady here and so so there's a couple things that i'm worried about with replay analysis one is since games of flesh and blood are so dynamic what could appear to be a right or wrong decision if we looked at the numbers or did the math or really thought about it it could be the wrong decision um but it worked out anyways and that kind of falls into the trap of like well it worked here so it was clearly the right decision so you can start getting like results-oriented thinking, potentially, if you're not careful with this kind of um, review. And then two, since the games are so dynamic, it's pretty easy to also just look at it and be like, well, yeah, I made the right play on this turn cycle, but because my opponent is going to draw a rainbow oak and hold perfect hand on the next turn cycle, I lost the game, and there wasn't much I could do about it other than blocking ineffectively earlier. But then that only works if my opponent draws a perfect rainbow oak and old but if they don't then all my prior turn cycles were good does that make any sense that is a very good point how do you not be results oriented how do you analyze like what is the correct play and what is the play that would have won the game even if it was the correct or the incorrect play in the long run right i guess do you have a current method that you use to determine what was incorrect versus like sometimes the like you said, the game-winning play is the incorrect play in the long term. How how do you approach looking at that? So when I'm trying to think about decisions I made in the game afterwards, whether it be just you know this meaningful discussion or in a replay review, although I don't really do replay reviews um, personally, I I think that they're good, but I just it's just I only have they're time-consuming. We'll say that much. This is <laughs> going to be one of the more time-consuming ways you can improve. 
it's also a little bit less fun than just play testing more. Right. But yeah, so you have to think about it in terms of like, well, what do you actually know at that point in time or what could you reasonably know? And it's going to be paying attention to what your opponent pitched. So if your opponent's already pitched or used two Oakenolds, then you say, well, oh, I could have known that there was this one more Oakenold coming up at the end of first cycle. And based on these earlier turn cycles, I could have played around it better. Or um, you also get the inverse of what cards haven't your opponent pitched or played yet. So if you're almost halfway through the first cycle and your opponent hasn't played a channel like Frigid, you might want to play a bit more aggressively in the next few turns, knowing that it's going to be harder for you to effectively use your cards if there's a channel like Frigid out. So if you're watching and you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm like 40 cards into this, we're 40 cards into our decks right now. And I totally could have seen that there's this channel like Frigid coming up in the next 20 cards. I could have adjusted my strategy here. So I think that's what makes this analysis hard is you really have to pay attention to not only the cards of what you are playing and aren't playing, but also what your opponent's cards are pitching and playing in. That's just kind of what makes Flesh and Blood so complex. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And a replay is kind of, replay analysis is kind of like a replay review is kind of a low stakes way of trying to start paying attention to that kind of thing. Like maybe you're watching a replay and you make a play that gets blown out by Sync Below, and then you look back at the video and you're like, wow, they didn't have a they it's it's like the fifth or sixth turn and they they hadn't played a sink below yet so it's kind of likely that they had they would have it there um that's maybe maybe blizzard's a better example as a card that would blow you out sink below just kind of just does an efficient thing but <laughs> unless you're <Dorinthia. laughs> yeah that's that's true that's true maybe you took damage to play a dominate effect and they had sink below in their arsenal so you so it wasn't very ended up being kind of bad something like that maybe mm. yeah but i think that's paying attention to cards played and pitch stacking is really what separates people who play at the highest levels of the game and i think the average player just because there's so much to consider on like each individual turn cycle of the game it's very hard to then also have this other tracking system in your head of notable cards on both your end and your opponent's end and when they were played it just is very mentally taxing. So I guess that could be a good point to replay review is just like just trying to keep track of different points and times of like pitch stacks or card scene is something that's like and just try to think like, oh, okay, well, I know I saw in turn one they pitched this card. Um, they should be drawing it here in the next two turns, right? And then they'll draw in the next two turns and you'll go like, yeah, hell yeah, I, I, I saw that coming. And then you'll feel better about yourself and it'll help you then go and do that in like a real tournament setting as well yeah when i when i added replay review to the show notes i didn't even think about it as like how 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 much it's helped me like practice counting not counting cards but like keeping track of pitch stacks and stuff that is it's a great way to just kind of pay attention to that kind of stuff and the more you practice it the more you'll be able to do it in live games and the less like brain space it'll take up i don't know if that's the right way to phrase that but like the more natural it'll start becoming to just like track a few things or just start tracking the key cards right and then you kind of get into these cool meta game well meta in-game meta decisions where um for example i had a really cool matchup against old time over the weekend and i saw him pitch uh, a blue earth lore surge right next to a red pummel and a red cnc and 
five or six turns later, when we were getting close to our third cycle, I was going for the kills Icelander and he pitched a blue Earthlore Surge. And I was like, oh, I know he's either going to have one to two reds in his hand now on top of which, so he's not going to be able to pay for any further arcane damage. I can just safely go for a kill here. And it worked out. I, you know, played my next Aether Ice Vein, triggered my Insidious Chill, and lo and behold, he discarded a red pummel. And I was like, cool. I kept track of this. It paid off. And I get to make more confident decisions in the game because it's something I paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example of that being very rewarding. Okay, anything else you want to talk about replay reviews, though? <laughs> so the last thing, I'm bringing it up again. Replays are a great thing to discuss with others if you have people that you can talk about the game with. Um, pointing to spots in the replay that you're like, hey, I think this was a mistake, or hey, how could I have sequenced this better? Reaching out to someone, they don't need to be better than you. They can be on the same level, or they don't. Like, just someone that will, like, spend some time to think about it and talk about it with you. And they can bring up potential other lines that you didn't consider, or even just kind of like help you confirm the math that this was the correct play or the incorrect play and why it's just another great thing to talk about others with. Okay. So you want to record your effective play testing to have meaningful discussions during a replay review. Got it. Yes. Yes. And then you post it on YouTube for others to consume content for. (laughs) Yeah. So spoilers last, last point. (laughs) Yeah. So our last point is something that you're already doing if you're listening to this podcast, but it's just, consuming content there's tons of great flesh and blood content out there there's tons of content that's not related not directly related to flesh and blood as well that it also applies to flesh and blood if you just like look for ways to get better at things and (laughs) there's just tons of material online about that kind of stuff and the main thing that i want to stress is when you listen to a podcast or you read an article about some something related to the game really try to like take something from it and apply it to your next session or apply as soon as possible. So uh, otherwise it can be very easy to just kind of like let the information go through your head and kind of fall back out if you aren't actively using it or trying to apply things you learned. Uh, An example would be after listening to our deck building episode, you should, it would be very helpful to go and attempt to build decks using some of the lessons that we talked about in that episode and Furthermore, you can even go further and try to play test with it and tune it using lessons as well. And that would be a great way to help have what we kind of talked about sink in, if that makes sense. Okay. So when I'm listening to the Instant Speed podcast, since I'm an Instant Speed patron, how am I getting better by listening to Flake talking about his latest casting session? <laughs> okay. I guess I should say content that is aimed at improvement there. So you're saying I'm getting worse by listening to no, Flake? No, I'm actively love, getting worse as a flesh and blood player. I love the Instance View podcast. Flake has a great show. It's not super aimed at helping you improve at flesh and blood all the time. Some of the episodes are. Like some of the episodes he talks about some strategy stuff with guests. But a lot of the time it's like flesh and blood news and what's going on in the world of Wraith, I guess. <laughs> and <laughs> Well, that's a different podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> your your other favorite podcast. I don't even can say their name because you're on that podcast so often. People already know. <laughs> and um, it's not going to hurt you to listen to things that aren't super competitive focused. And it's good to enjoy your hobbies however you enjoy them. And that's fine. But if you are listening to something with the intent of getting better at the game, then it really helps what you listen to or reading. This applies to articles as well. 
listening to or reading and really try to apply things from it. And that's, that helps it stick with you and helps you kind of like see what you were hearing in like a different perspective or get your own perspective on it. And that makes it stick better. So what articles are there published regularly that you read then? Or what website should people go to? So I guess I will shout out the Wraith Times. That's a great one that I, I've written a few articles for them and I read a lot of what is posted there. Um, there's a few other websites that aren't coming to mind right now, but there's, give me a second. I'm just going to look real quick. I know Channel Fireball has them, but they're usually, they have an author on there. I won't name names. They have an author on Channel Fireball who's so bad at writing. He inspired me to actually start writing articles that are actually of good quality. And that's how I wrote my very first article for the Wraith Times is I read one of his articles and I was like, this is a flaming dumpster fire. I can't believe this is actually being published about flesh and blood. I need to put out some good content in order to counterbalance how horrendous this article was. There were, he, he posted like a Dorinthia deck that was for like sabers or whatever. And he had like the, the dominate for axes card in it. I can't think of its name at the moment. Spill but like blood. He had, he had spill blood in like his sabers Dorinthia deck. And I'm like, what is happening here? That sounds like just a, just an oversight of that's what happened. But Anyway, so I have a few more websites outside of Channel Fireball. So the main Fab TCG uh, occasionally has Flesh and Blood articles that are aimed at strategy. A lot of the time, it's, again, just news and updates about what's going on. But there is some strategy stuff that gets posted on there. And then there's a site called Red Riot Games that also has some Flesh and Blood articles on there as well. So I'm sure there's others that I don't know. Feel free to leave comments with names of websites with good flesh and blood articles. Cause I'd also love to have access to more resources, but those are the ones that I look at. Okay. I don't really read very many articles these days. Yeah. You just need infinite time for flesh and blood like me. And then you can read all the articles, listen to all the podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I have a very limited amount of time to dedicate to flesh and blood. And it does not include two of these four <laughs> things we're talking about. <laughs> you just need more time. Then you can do a bunch of effective playtesting, have a bunch of meaningful discussions. Review, yeah, sorry. Review a lot sorry, of replays. Angela, I can't, I can't help <laughs> with Austin tonight. I got to go do some replay reviews. Yeah, yeah. 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 Priorities. There's Flesh mm-hmm. and Blood and then there's your baby. <laughs> yeah, Austin will be here for the next 18 years. He ain't going anywhere. I need to consume this content now. <laughs> well, it's relevant. <laughs> so I guess those are the four general or four main things that I do to help me improve at Flesh and Blood. And you said you do two of them regularly and you consume some content, just not as many articles, right? Yeah. yeah. And the content that I would, I do consume is like the instant speed podcast or um, most of the time I would consider the podcast that shall not be named to be just an entertainment podcast because wow. I, <laughs> uh, I don't feel like every episode they do is like necessarily geared towards necessarily getting better it's just kind of like fluff content sometimes but that's not so So, bad some of our episodes some of our episodes aren't exactly aimed at getting better like we talked about why we love card games and that was a great episode and i love doing it but i I wouldn't say it helps people get better at the game oh yeah yeah it's just a question of like how often do you post fluff you know (laughs) and i feel like our fluff meter is getting pretty high but ours is Maybe. I don't know. I guess it depends on like what you consider fluff and whatnot. Like, is this conversation about fluff now diluting our quality podcast by adding fluff to it now? Hmm, maybe. Maybe. We'll leave it in, though. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I do. So can we can we rate these in terms of like what is most important then to what is least important uh, for busy guys like me so we know how to best use our time then? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so what, which of these is, is the most important you would consider to being a better flesh and blood player? I would say that effective playtesting, the first few hours you put into flesh and blood it should probably go into playtesting. If you're playing less than one or two games a week, then it's going to be pretty tough to be to really be able to get much from anything else, I think, if you're not at least playing a little bit of the game. But oh, that's that's way lower than I would say. I would say like you should be playing like 10 games a week, five to 10 games a week, like one game a day between like Talishar or something like that. And like you have to think most people will probably play like three matches, three to however many, like three to four to five during their local armory events. So um, I think it's not that difficult to say, you know, at least try to on average get like one game of flesh and blood a day. And that way you're at least like also like playing the game more often and having that more consistent repetition of playing with the cards. Yeah, th- that makes sense. I I guess I wanted to put the number low because I don't want to like barrier people out if they can't play test. But I would say that like your first probably three to four hours a week should probably go into play testing. And then after that, I would say meaningful discussions is probably next where at some point play testing by yourself and just like internally trying to process things and learn from it is going to fall off compared to what you would gain from having discussions with other like-minded players. And once you've met the basically the number of games you need to be at least like reasonably sharp. And then at that point you'll get more from the first few hours of discussion than you would from playing more games. Okay. I'm on, I'm on board. I want to see how you rank these last two now though. These are, these are what I'm most curious about because they're the most, uh, I guess, dedication time wise. So it kind of depends how you want to or how focused your time is. I think that listening to podcasts is something you can do while you're doing something else, like you're mowing the lawn or doing dishes. You can turn a podcast on and that kind of makes it more passive or when you're driving to work. I forgot some people still do that. I'm sorry. Yeah. But do you think people can like really internalize and like learn or because I know sometimes I'll just put things on in the background just to have like noise, but like there are times where I can have a whole podcast go by and I'm like, you know what? I actually don't think I remember a word they said. It was just <laughs> playing. Jeez. I guess that kind of goes into why I was talking about trying to apply things from each episode, but it's hard to do that. If you're like listening to a podcast on your way to work, you go work your full shift at work, you come back, you put on another podcast and then you get home and you forgot everything from the first podcast. Yeah. Um, I think that I would say that overall, I think you'll get more from reprint replay review than you would from listening to podcasts once you reach a certain point that you're able to really notice your mistakes when you go back and watch replays if you are watching replays and you feel like you don't you aren't able to see your see mistakes or you're trying to like calculate what's more efficient and you're having a lot of trouble with that then i would say that consuming content is more important but once you've consumed enough content i think you'll start getting more and more from replay analysis basically like as you get better, you get more returns from re- replay analysis, I think. Oh, and you know what I just realized we didn't talk about, about consuming content. That's like actually a really good way to like learn and study the game. I used to do this all the time with Magic is I would just go and play old pro tours. I would just load up like the 
pro tours for or it was worlds of like shahar shanhar versus ben stark on like it's like an hour it's like a 90 minute like just guy control mirror matchup i just would watch that for fun sometimes but go and just load up like all the vods from the first pro tour or the second pro tour or whatever the most recent calling was and you can watch what the good players are doing and like compare that to like what plays you're making in your own game to see if they're doing anything different with like even the exact same 80 cards yeah, I, I would agree. And like specifically looking for matchups involving decks that you've been like practicing with is the most helpful when you've been practicing and you think you know like the play patterns for a deck and then you watch and they're doing something completely different or they they play a hand very differently than you. That's like that can be a very big level up moment. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Because I did that a lot with magic and I've also I don't just watch my own games of flesh and blood, I watch other people too. <laughs> I believe it when I walk in on you watching somebody else's VOD for one. <laughs> I've seen all of the Goliath Gala that's out so far. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. I saw Pablo Pintor lose as well. That was a great day. Some people say he's the best player in the world. He lost to Levia, Michael. You can't be the best player in the world and lose to Levia. You're really, you're really trying to pick some fights. <laughs> Pablo's great. Ethan's also yeah, very good. He's good. good. He, yeah. And yeah. He, he's, he's very good. He's just not Michael Hamilton, you know, but who is? <sighs> okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Unlike me, the next time you're playing Flesh and Blood, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.